Our great God and Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have made us participants here in the end of the ages through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Through his great grace, his death and resurrection, you have taken the curse from us. You have enlightened our burden and brought us to the heavenly places. And Father, we think now about many of our brothers and sisters who are burdened, but thankfully by the death and resurrection of Christ, not burdened as the world, especially those saints in Japan, Father. We pray for them. Pray that you would be gracious to them to lift their eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that you would ask, we ask that you would uh, grant the church not only safety and peace, Father, but also the opportunity for your gospel in that land. Um, we think also especially of missionaries that we know, such as the Lowers, uh, the Uomotos, the Cummings, and others, Father. We ask that you would bless their ministries among their people and cause them to show the love of Christ in the midst of great uh, suffering, Father, that you may be glorified and that you may bring men and women to your Son. And we ask now that you would help us to understand the riches of your grace more fully in your word as we look into it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're beginning uh, tonight uh, with Galatians chapter 5. And uh, you wonder how we got this far. Uh, But yes, we're here. And uh, we want to think back and just a brief review of last week where we were looking at Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. And uh, if you recall, uh, we saw the conflict there especially centered in the the two Jerusalems. The Jerusalem, the present Jerusalem that is in slavery with her children, and the Jerusalem above, who is our mother. And this Jerusalem above is the heavenly kingdom of God, in Jesus Christ, where the Son of Man is seated at the right hand of the Father. And this, of course, this heavenly Jerusalem has been brought more fully to us now, right? More fully by the work of Christ, so that we become participants in the prophetic promise, especially there in Isaiah 54, Isaiah looking in the exile, from the exile, to the point of view of the future deliverance of God's people. And there it is said that the woman who is barren will have more children than of her who has a husband. Okay. And so we are thinking of the barrenness even of Israel in this particular case in exile and how God will reverse it. And here he will reverse it by bringing in Gentiles to the kingdom of heaven. And he will bring the fullness of the kingdom of God and the new Jerusalem. And we were also looking at how this conflict, this present conflict between the Jerusalem above and the present Jerusalem is a conflict between the truth of the gospel as Paul preached it and the Judaizers. And the Judaizers who are absolutizing this world, who are making the present Jerusalem an end in itself, who are looking to this world embodied in their Jerusalem. 
and wanting to find their final goal and their eschatology, their end in it. And we saw how this struggle, by which the Judaizers now, in some sense, persecute the church, is already embodied in pre-patriarchal history. That history in which Isaac is the seed of the promise. Remember, the promise is important in this book. Isaac, the seed of the promise, and that struggle between him, you see, and the seed of the flesh, in this case, Ishmael, all right, though not named. And there, that embodies the struggle which is yet to come. And so I suggested to you that Paul is indicating to us that he who was, you see, the son of the Spirit was persecuted by the other, so it is now, the Spirit, and therefore what is happening is Isaac, in his historical life, anticipated the age to come by his participation in the Spirit yet to come. And this looks forward to even the exilic period and the future period that we're in. Uh, Jim gave me an interesting thought, too, uh, last time is that uh, because we're seeing the patriarchal period is embodied in this whole thing, it's not just the barrenness that's going on in the exile, but this barrenness in the exile is anticipated in the patriarchal history, where Sarah herself is barren, you see, before she has a child. And then when she has a child, that child is going to be the one through whom the blessing to the nations will come. At least he will be the line to which we will have the Messiah through whom the blessing to the nations come. And therefore, there's anticipation in the patriarchal history of this situation here, even in the exilic period, and to the reversal of that. So that what Paul is doing is he's, he's giving us a window into how he interprets the scriptures. All right. And not only a window into how he interprets the scriptures, but he wants us to identify with redemptive history. And what he's doing is he's calling the Galatians to identify with redemptive history. You see, it's it, the Judaizers want to be sons of Abraham, but there are sons of Abraham according to the flesh, and that's what they are. But we are sons of Abraham by the Spirit. And that's where the promises of God come, to us through the Spirit through being participants in the fullness of the time. Okay, so it goes back to the beginning of the chapter, the fullness of the time. We've inherited the eschatological promises already, semi-realized. So the future eschatological prophecies, uh, look, the prophecies of the Old Testament looking to the future eschatological state have been already, have already come, but semi-realized because we have yet to wait for the coming of Christ, right? And this is what Paul is trying to do. He's trying to get the Galatians to identify with this drama. So they see the struggle between themselves and the Judaizers in this light, and they identify with the Jerusalem above, which is free and which is their mother. And not to be brought into bondage by the Judaizers, who hate this freedom, who hate the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who brings this freedom, and who hate even the Father in heaven for sending his Son. And so he introduces us in 5.1 with this indicative of salvation, you see, that he's been talking about. So this is all comes to the background of what we're going to talk about today. And you can see that I have on your outline, number two, Galatians 5 in general, we have this indicative imperative 
the indicative, remember, in, in uh, grammar is a statement of fact, right? An imperative is what you are what? Commanded to do, right? So we have an indicative imperative. The indicative for Paul is you have died with Christ. You see, you've been crucified with him and you've been raised with him. And here, you have been set free in the death and resurrection of Christ. For freedom, Christ has set us free. So this first indicative, what we find in Romans in this chapter, chapter 5 of Galatians, is we find three, especially three indicatives, which then are the basis of the imperatives. So we've got 5.1, right? It's for freedom that Christ set us free. There's an indicative. We have 5.13, for you were called to freedom, brethren. See, that's the indicative. They were called to freedom. Notice how freedom is fundamental in both of those indicatives, too. And then verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And then you see he takes that indicative and he makes it the basis of the imperative, verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. Okay. So he relates this to crucifying the crucifixion in Christ. Now, notice then what he's saying is live out of this liberty. Do not be enslaved to another. That's what the Judaizers wanted to do. They wanted to make the children of God slaves. See, under their control and their thumb and enslave them by focusing them on the things of the world and what they'll lose out, you see, if they don't follow the Jewsyizers in this world. And this liberty is, of course, the liberty that's in Christ. We've already seen that connection with the indicatives, right, where Christ is in the third one, clearly. But think of the liberty that's in Christ, 429 and 30, which we just uh, looked at last week. Uh, but at the time, you who were born according to the flesh persecuted those who were born according to the Spirit. For, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman will not be heir with the son of the free woman. You see, he's on the one hand, Isaac is thought of as born according to the Spirit and of the free woman. So there's a connection between life in the Spirit and liberty. There's a sense in which this whole chapter, you see, is prefaced by the liberty by which you have been set free. And that determines your Christian life and duty. Okay. Sometimes we are left with the impression that Christian duty, you see, is simply another form of enslavement. Now, it is enslavement to Christ, but enslavement to Christ in the liberty with which he set us free. So it's liberation, you see. And you're to live out of that liberty. So there's that freedom and that wonderful, effusive, lightheartedness, fruits of the Spirit, love and joy and peace that comes from that. You see. So he's calling the Galatians to stand for their liberty and not give in. And one of the problems is Judaizers are pressing them to give in, you see. And so they're being pressed 
And we might say, we'll see in this chapter, people are being pressed by the world and the Judaizers, but we can also include the flesh, clearly, right? We know it's the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the world and the flesh are highlighted in this chapter. Though the devil is not far behind, right? And so... Now, the Judaizers are pressing these Gentiles to be circumcised. They're pressing them to go back to the older administration of the law, even to the the degree that there was embodied some form of external slavery there. Okay. And I've suggested to you that the, the, the way I look at this is that is the covenant of God or the church, invisible and visible. And in the Old Covenant, they are sons, truly justified by grace. The elect are sons, truly by his grace. But visibly, in the visible manifestations of the grace of God in the land, they are sons slash slaves, you might say. So there is that visible degree of slavery, which then is manifested especially in the exile when they're taken into slavery And then the prophet says, we're going to reverse that. We're going to reverse that, bring everlasting freedom so that that slavery is no longer. So we can say sons, not slaves, and sons truly. So the adoption of sons manifests more fully in the fullness of the times. So if you're going to bring people, require people to be circumcised, you're saying you have to go back to this older administration. You have to go back to the older administration and become a Jew to become a part of the people of God. And when you do that, you're going backward towards slavery. And now that Christ has died and been raised, if you go backward towards slavery, you're saying, the slavery is what I cared about here. I don't want the substance of what was here because that's realizing Christ. I want the slavery that was here. So really, I want slavery to the world completely. That's, That's where the Judaizers are leading you. They're leading you by way of going backward in redemptive history to slavery in the world. Slavery to this evil age. And so, what do we find in Galatians 5, 1 to 12? We have a lead word uh, in this section of 5, 1 to 12. And I've just talked about a certain thing. What do you think? Does anybody know what that lead word is? What's a word that you see here occurring a lot of times? Freedom. 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 Okay, good. And stand firm. All right, all right. So we do have freedom here. I'm looking for something else. I'm looking for something that is on the side of the Judaizers, if you want to put it that way. We have two... What? Slavery. Okay, good. And slavery. There's a word that occurs in verses 2, 3, and then 6 and 11. Circumcision, correct. Okay. Circumcision found in verses 2, 3, 6, 11, and it's implied in 12. That is to go the whole way and emasculate themselves. So he's talking, he's, circumcision is a major part of this discourse right here. 
And here you see in 5.1, he says, stand firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you at all. Okay? So don't be subject to a yoke of slavery. Don't be circumcised. Isn't he implying? If you're circumcised, you'll be subject to a yoke of slavery. Yes. Okay. So he's, he's, he is back in that world that we've seen in this epistle where you go backward in redemptive history seeking to be circumcised because you want to absolutize that, make this administration an end in itself. When you do that, you go back to slavery, but you go back, I'm going to say, ultimately to ultimate slavery now. Now that Christ has come, you can't go back to this the way it was, where you were sons and slaves. You go back to this now, you're nothing but slaves. Okay. And so it's a yoke of slavery. Well, I'd also like to recommend to you that if we look at these verses, especially verses 2 to 6, we can see that Paul wants us to see that those who are departing from the grace of Christ by being circumcised are rejecting the fullness of the time that Jesus has brought. Doesn't that make sense in light of what we've seen in this epistle? If you're circumcised, you're rejecting the glories that Christ has brought. You're going back under bondage to the older administration. You're rejecting the freedom that has been brought in Christ Jesus. And he makes that implicitly in verse 6. He makes that point implicitly in verse 6. Notice what he says. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Okay, now, I believe that he's implying the coming of the kingdom of God here, even. And it's not as clear, perhaps, as it's parallel in 6.15, but I think it's implicit. So let's look at 6.15. Anybody want to read that for us? Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Okay, good. What counts is a new creation. See, it's neither circumcision or uncircumcision that means anything, but a new creation. When did the different when was there a distinction between circumcision and uncircumcision where it mattered? When did it matter? In the Old Testament, right? So that distinction between circumcision and circumcision is significant here. And so he's saying, now, by contrast to the old, now there is no distinction between circumcision and uncircumcision, but a new creation has come. The new creation. You see, the heavenly kingdom of God has arrived. All right? And so I think that he's...
got something similar in mind when we look at our passage in verse 6, chapter 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. All right. Now, therefore, faith working through love is put on this side of the continuum. And has he not told us in this epistle, specifically speaking of Christ most objectively, that now faith has come, Galatians 3.23. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. And of course, in that chapter, he's focusing on the objective manifestation of the faith in Jesus Christ having come. But then we also have our appropriation of the coming of faith, so that we might be justified by faith. 3.24. And I believe there he is especially focusing on the fullness of the justifying verdict that has come in Christ, that now even the curse of the law has been removed from the people of God even as it was manifest under the land. And so that now we might be justified in the fullness of the time, even in a fuller manifestation of that justification, now that has come in Christ. So that in the new creation, we have especially faith working through love in greater fullness. Now, that doesn't mean that we necessarily have more faith than David had, but that it that this faith relates now, it's faith alone, that now is that link to the fullness of vindication in terms of uh, the manifestation of that righteousness. That is, now the people of God are not living under the law as if certain degrees of obedience to the law will then mean certain degrees of blessedness in this world and certain degrees versus certain degrees of curse in this world. Instead, that curse, thinking back to the prophetic promises, has been removed, even in that manifestation, so that now we can be said, in some sense, to possess the fullness of the time in a new way. But it's faith working through love. And that's what he's going to deal with in this chapter. Faith working through love. And so love is going to be the crown of all the commandments. And so, implicitly, he's going to set in this thing faith against what? Circumcision. You say. Neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. So now, if you're a Gentile, do you need to be circumcised? No, you do not need to be circumcised. You see, you live by faith alone, not observance of the ritual code of the Old Testament. You see, 
You don't need that. Instead, it is faith which a Gentile can possess. Well, what does um, Paul then doing when he says in this, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. In Christ Jesus. Remember, circumcision did make a difference before, did it not? But now... In Christ Jesus, circumcision or uncircumcision makes a diff- no difference. You see, is he implying here what he will later say in Colossians 2.11, that Christ is circumcised in the cross? You see, that that bloody rite of circumcision also represents the incompleteness of the arrival of the Redeemer, that the the one who would redeem his people has not yet arrived, therefore we have bloody sacrifice and so forth, and with it we have this bloody rite of circumcision. Is he suggesting that Christ then bears the curse of the law? He's talked about that in this book, Christ taking upon himself the curse of the law, is he then suggesting that that curse in terms of circumcision is, is borne by Christ himself? You see, so that he is circumcised in his death? I think so. And then, in his resurrection, since he's already circumcised, does circumcision or uncircumcision mean anything in his resurrection? No, because he satisfied the wrath of God and even all the bloody rituals of the Old Covenant. So this, to me, suggests both Christ's death and his resurrection. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything. Because of what he did, but a new creation. You see, what Christ has done has brought the fullness of the age to come to you, right? The fullness of the time he's brought. Semi-realized, of course. Well, if this is what Paul has in mind here, then what is the implication if you leave Christ now? What happens if you are circumcised because you believe it's necessary for salvation? Isn't it like you're saying, Christ doesn't satisfy, does he? Christ doesn't give me enough. I need something more. Now what you're saying? And so if you're, sat, if you're seeking to be sac- circumcised, you're saying Christ is not sufficient. I need something else. 
you have departed from Christ because he has brought the fullness of redemption. Has he not? It has come. How can you say he is insufficient since he has brought the fullness of the times and be circumcised? But if you do that, you are departing from God's grace altogether. You see, you cannot go back to this older administration now that Christ has come and brought the fullness of the times. If you do, you have departed from God's grace altogether. And so that's what he's suggesting, I think, here in verses 2 to 6. Now, why do I, one of the reasons I bring this up, besides the fact that it's in the text, is that uh, people in the new perspective on Paul, they do not believe that Paul is saying, if you depart from Christ, you're obligated to keep the whole law perfectly. See, I think what he's saying is, if you depart from Christ, if you're trying to be circumcised, you're departing from Christ, you're departing from grace altogether. All right? And so you are obligated to keep the law perfectly. These people in the new perspective, they don't believe that. They believe that, no, Paul is just saying you've got to keep the law extensively. You've got to keep every aspect of the law if you depart, if you're circumcised. That doesn't do justice to this text. Now let's go through a few things, and, and, and I'll repeat that again if you didn't get it. Look at the parallels here that you have in your handout, okay, under number five on the second page. If you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And then he says, I testify again, as if he's just saying almost like the same thing. Receive circumcision, then you'll be under obligation to keep the whole law. So you see, Christ will be of no benefit to you. You will be under obligation to keep the whole law. Well, just looking at that, was Christ of benefit to the old covenant saint when he was circumcised? If they believe by faith in the coming of Christ? Is Christ a benefit to David? Yes. yes. But now if you're circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. So can you go back to the law now, in terms of circumcision, and receive grace like David did? No. All right, so it is true that under the law, under that economy, the law was a means of grace to the people of God in their sanctification. Of course, it is a means of grace to us as well, but not in terms of its ritual aspects. But even the ritual aspects of the law were a means of grace to them. And... So, yes, God, in terms of that covenant of grace in which he gave the Old Testament people of God, 
and he gave salvation to David. Did he then tell David, but you've got to obey the whole law absolutely 100% perfectly, or all that grace that I gave you is going to be worthless? Did he do that to David? No. He didn't do that to David, did he? He's calling him to obey the law perfectly. God is doing such. But David's sin, as long as he remains in true faith as a child of God, his sin does not disqualify him from being a saint of God. Right? And that's the way these new perspective guys, at best, that's the way they're looking at that. They're saying, ah, that's the way it was in the Old Testament, you see. Uh, And that's the way Jews looked at it, and therefore... That must be what Paul is saying. Hey, if you're going to be circumcised, you've got to go back and obey the whole law in terms of ritual and all this kind of stuff, and then you'll be okay, kind of like maybe David was. But is that sufficient for Paul? That's not sufficient for Paul, because that's implying that the, that the new fullness of the times hasn't arrived, isn't it? And that you could either opt for the fullness of the times or the previous administration as if the fullness of the times didn't go beyond the previous administration and annul its previous form. Okay. You can't do that for Paul. You can't simply go back under the older administration as they did before. And so Paul is not saying, if you're circumcised, well, then you're going to have to go to the trouble of keeping the ritual sacrifices and all that kind of stuff. He's saying more than that. See? He's saying more than that. He's saying, you have to obey the law perfectly. Perfectly. You've got to obey the whole law perfectly. Why? Because, you see, you have been, Christ is no benefit to you at all. If he's no benefit, then you have the absolute obligation to keep the law perfectly. And so in the next little setup of three clauses that I have below that, severed from Christ, seeking to be justified in the law, you have fallen from grace. Notice, severed from Christ, you have fallen from grace. No grace whatsoever. You see? And if there's no grace whatsoever then you must be obligated to keep the law perfectly in every way. And implicitly, that's where the Judaizers are bringing these people, you see, into bondage to keep the law perfectly under them as the teachers of the law. And therefore, they're putting them in absolute slavery. That is their goal. No wonder they hate the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who has brought liberty to these people because they want to put them in bondage. They do not want the freedom of Him who is above, the freedom of the person of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that wonderful life that they've had from all eternity in which there is joy and everlasting love in freedom. Because they want an abstraction. They want to worship the world as an idol. They want something that is impersonal that they can control. And they want persons who are depersonalized. 
because they are not united to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They want to depersonalize these people and bring them into bondage. And that will be exemplified in the works of the flesh in this chapter. Well, what is the grace from which they would depart if they depart? Are they not departing from the fullness of the times that has now arrived in Christ Jesus? They are rejecting that grace and they have fallen from that grace. those who are seeking to be justified by law. The grace of the new age and the fullness of the times. And, of course, again, this is what the Judaizers want. They want the Gentiles to be destroyed. Verse 4, you see, verse 4, you will have been severed from Christ. That language there is the language of destruction, and we'll look at it again when we get to verse 11. Because in verse 11, he says that circumcision destroys the cross of Christ. That's what they want, to destroy the cross of Christ, because they hate the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who has liberated the people of God and brought in the age to come. Now, in light of that, in light of some of those thoughts, I'd like us to look again at the beginning of this epistle and see if they shed light on it for you. I want you to think about the Father and the liberating work that he does here at the beginning. So we want to read for us verses 1 and 2 to begin with. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Okay, notice. Grace from what? That is, Paul is an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Okay. Now, it is from that arena that he gives forth this grace. Verse 3. Somebody want to read for us verses 3 to 5. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Okay. You see what he's saying? is he's, he's implying that the grace that he has as an apostle from Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, it's that grace. It's that resurrection life. It's the grace of that resurrection life that's come to you. It's the peace of that resurrection life by which he has destroyed the enemy, enmity between you and God. 
It's the peace of that resurrection life that comes to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Bringing us back to the beginning of Galatians 4 when it's the Father who sends the Son. You see, the Father has manifest his fatherly love for us in liberating us in the fullness of the times from this wicked evil age and has brought us that liberty that's in Christ Jesus. In that Father, we don't need circumcision, do we? In that Son, we do not need circumcision. We have been circumcised with the circumcision that's of Christ. We've been raised into heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And therefore, the Judaizers are opposing that message and that life by what they're doing. Well, back to chapter 5. to look at verses 7 through 10, and I'm going to read, well, have somebody read them for us, um, have somebody read verses 7 and 10 for us uh, to get us familiar with some less familiar passages. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Okay. Um, now, I did, sk- I did skip something in my notes I want to go to, and then we'll come back to this, this text. And that is, uh, I want us to think... Still, in verse 5, about we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. We through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. And he says that right before he says, circumcision is nothing or incircumcision, but faith working through love. So, we through the Spirit are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Now, here, I think there's a contrast between verse 5 and what comes before in verse 4. You've been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified by the law. You've fallen from grace. Okay, So these ones seeking to be justified by the law, they have fallen from grace. Law, justification, they have fallen from grace. But we, you see... For we, excuse me, for we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. We, in a sense, on the other hand, are by the Spirit waiting for the hope of righteousness. And this is the conflict, you see, between the people of God and even the Judaizers. But what does he mean here between waiting for the hope of righteousness? Well, 
Herman Ritterboss, who's a New Testament uh, scholar, has actually suggested to us that here Paul is talking about the future hope of righteousness, because hope looks ahead to the future, so that we're actually looking to Christ's second coming and the hope of righteousness yet to come, looking for this righteousness. Now, that, I do, I'm going to read a quote from him on this and how he, how he clarifies this. And I'll tell you basically what he says is, look, you don't want to separate this, though, from the righteousness that we already have in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You do not want to think, okay, I mean, a Roman Catholic might think, and there you don't want to think like this, you don't want to think that, oh, I haven't been justified fully, but I'm waiting for that full justification that might be brought to me in the future, as if I am lacking a justification in, in the sense that I am under the wrath of God presently, and therefore might go to purgatory, for instance. Okay. And I'm waiting for that hope of righteousness to make up for what I don't have now. No, it's not that. This whole epistle has been telling us that through the death and resurrection of the Christ, we've been justified fully. And we've been brought, been brought into the new age beyond the curse of the law. And so he can't be saying we wait for that to happen in the future. Okay, what Ritterbaugh says is this righteousness here that's coming is basically the same righteousness as we already possess, but in effect manifests to the world. All right. Um, let me read. Let me read you what he says in Paul, an outline of his theology, here on page one sixty six. The manner in which this future righteousness is here defined, namely as the content of hope, of the hope awakened by the Spirit, which is obtained by faith, makes it clear, however, that this future righteousness is not another than that which has already been revealed. It is the same thing. But one can speak of it both in a present and in a future sense. Just as the adoption of sons, righteousness can be represented as a benefit already obtained as well as still to be expected. So, I think what Paul is saying here is this righteousness that we already possess, we will lay hold of in some sense, in the future, in its manifestation, in its fuller manifestation. And so I would put this in terms of the way the Westminster Standards lay this out, that, that the future righteousness of the saints is the vindication of the saints before the world. See, it is not like the Roman Catholic view where there is some insufficiency in our present justification which has to be made up by some future hope. Okay. And you see, yes, 
in a sense, both things going on then. The hope of righteousness involves the fact that we are righteous. I mean, I think that's that's implicit. I hadn't thought about reading it so much as you were doing in terms of the words there. I think it's implicit. Maybe even language has that nuance. I mean, I'm thinking off the top of my head here on this one, but... I don't think Dikaiasune can be disrupted from his whole concept of now righteousness right. now justification. I mean, Paul can't ever think that way. At yeah. least I don't think he can. No, I think I think you're right. So so then then we really see that very clearly, even in the way that he's using the language here, perhaps. The hope of righteousness. For in Christ, in fact... It is interesting, then you see, he says, for in Christ Jesus, the already is there in verse 6, right? For don't, don't we hope that we will be cosmically vindicated? Yes. Right? Yeah. No, I, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, we, can't, we don't have to erase it from our Bibles. We can leave it there. No, no. Uh, no, I... I, I I have I have no problem talking like that myself because I think Ritterboss is ultimately right. Okay, I think that he's ultimately right. You have this thing going on with the adoption of sons, the same way in Romans eight, where there's a future adoption of sons. Okay, there's an already not yet aspect of the adoption of sons. Uh, so, yeah, this is this is perfectly in in, in harmony with what Paul talks about elsewhere. Okay, um, and uh, what is interesting? I mean, if you have if you have the fruits of the spirit in this chapter, the fruits of the spirit are what? What are, what are the three? Let's put the what's the three in First Corinthians thirteen that stand out above all? Faith, hope, and love. Right. Well, what do you have right here in these verses? Verse 5 and 6. Faith, hope, and love. Right? Okay. So, uh, yes, we have what is happening, I mean, I think, and I, I just wanted to do justice to it, you know, what was being said there and try to think about that. But here is what I think is we have this person who in verse 4, okay, those who are seeking to be justified by law. What are they doing when they are seeking to be justified by law? What are they saying about their justification? It's, is it present? No. No. That's right. They are looking only for righteousness in the future, aren't they? They are seeking to be justified by law. Okay? You have fallen from grace. And... By contrast, you see, Paul says, for through the Spirit by faith, we are seeking the hope of righteousness. So he's got a contrast between their future hope, which is based on their works, and the hope of righteousness that we have. Right? In light of the justification we already have. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything. But faith, the already, working through love. Right. Yeah, Dave? You point out, as the text says, that the prior administration 
uh, is totally insufficient now the crisis comes. Mm -hmm. um, and I couldn't agree more. But what I quite frankly find a little curious is your use of administration, the part administration. I notice the NIV translates the word administration, which King James translates dispensation. But I suspect that dispensation to a Reformed theologian tastes very sour in the mouth. Um, I'm at a little bit of a loss because my view of um, the prior administration or prior dispensation, it's prefatory, it's looking forward to the Savior, the Messiah's work. We now have that event as a historical fact. Mm -hmm. We have all these richer endowments. Um, so I, I don't know how it is that my view of that I've just expressed would differ from your view. Well, maybe your view doesn't differ from mine, you did, but. <laughs> Um, Praise God. <laughs> I mean, I will tell you how, uh, you know, you've mentioned dispensation tasting sour in a Reformed theologian's mouth. I will tell you how it differs from classic dispensationalism anyways, okay, uh, is that Reformed theology believes that the older administration was, and the covenant of, given to Moses was a covenant of grace, right? It's a covenant of grace administered to the people of God, all right? And so that's the administration of grace. It's administered, you see, partially by types and shadows. Here we could look at this outward circle in a sense as the administration of the grace, all right? And here by circumcision and so forth, all right? That would be a dispensation in terms of administration. The New Covenant administered somewhat differently, you see, with different administration. And... Uh, so that would be the difference between dispensations, but the unity of the covenant, okay, the unity of the covenants in terms of their gracious nature. Classic dispensationalism, at least, and, and I can't tell you all the ins and outs of progressive dispensationalism, but classic dispensationalism said that a dispensation is a way in which God tested a certain group of people in a certain way. So he tested Israel in terms of works, and that's, at least for classic dispensationalism, that's what the Mosaic Covenant was. It's a covenant of works by which God tested the people by means of works, and they were found wanting. All right? They weren't saved by that or, or lost by that. They were still saved under that period, but it, that salvation they received was not administered by the Mosaic Covenant. Okay? Because the Mosaic Covenant itself was a specific uh, test of perfect fidelity to the law, and they failed. Okay, And in that sense, they're talking about a dispensation in which God tests a certain people for a certain point in time. You see, And then another dispensation does that. So that's different than talking about different administrations of God's grace in the covenant of grace, or the administration of grace. 
I, I see some puzzled looks, so do we have any puzzling, any questions about that? Um, I didn't do adequate justice to it, believe me, but uh, I did the basics, I think. You don't think I did it adequately, or you think I did do it adequately? Well, I know that, yeah. So I wasn't apologizing for it. I was trying to explain in a sense how the Westminster Standards use it differently, right? Don't you think they do? Good. Okay. So, uh, all right, well, uh, let's, let's look after our break at verses 7 through 11. Okay, let's, uh, let's look now at verses 7 to 10 then. And uh, in this section, he's talking about, he introduces it uh, with, or at least in verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole dump, lump. And here, I think he's talking about how the Judaizers have corrupted the message, and perhaps the life of the fullness of the times and cast them out seems to suggest church discipline, perhaps. But it certainly also implies to avoid the leaven of their teaching. Little leaven leavens the whole lump. And but I want us to think that he's even... See, he's not forgotten his message of the fullness of the times that's come in Christ. In fact, if you look at verse 7, he says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? We've already seen how Paul uses this term, how they were not acting right in terms of the truth of the gospel, as he says about Peter, you see, in chapter 2, where he's not... Peter's going back and he's living in accordance with what might be accepted in terms of the older administration, but not in terms of the new age, not in terms of the fullness of the gospel, and that's how he's more precisely using the term, the truth of the gospel. Well, they were running in accordance with the truth. They were running well. And Paul, of course, is using that metaphor that he often uses about running and running a race. And so running by faith, you see and working itself out by love. Faith in the fullness of the work that Christ has brought. And now he says, this persuasion does not come from him who calls you. Okay? Does not come from him who calls you. Ah, who is the one who called them? Christ is the one who called them, is he not? In fact... They are said to have been called to freedom. All right. And Christ has set them free, 5 1. And we find that they have been made participants in the Jerusalem that's above. All right. In 426. So. 
He is this language of freedom. Freedom. Uh, you know what it is? It's, it's, I had the wrong chapter in this. It's verse 13 of our chapter. For you were called to freedom. You see? You were called to freedom. Christ called us to freedom. In what? In his resurrection, right? In his being called from death to life. He called us into that. Into freedom. And therefore we're made free sons and daughters in the Jerusalem that's above, 426. So you see, this persuasion does not come from him who called you. What's the, what would be the opposite? Would it not be a persuasion that does come from him who called you? Right? In other words, they ought to be persuaded by him who called them. They ought to live out of that life. Being called in Christ in the resurrection. Being called to freedom. They ought to stand firm. Now they have a persuasion that's the opposite of that. It's at odds with that. And, of course, this calling is that calling of the fullness of the times. And what is it? If it's not, it's not a, does not come from him who calls you, the persuasion, you see, is the persuasion of works righteousness. How does Paul lay out a con- in, in chapter 9 of Romans, he lays out a contrast. Not of works, but of him who calls. And here I think it's implicit. Persuasion doesn't come from him who called you, because this persuasion is a persuasion of works righteousness that the Judaizers are trying to lead you into. Okay. Because the one who called you has already accomplished the works of the law, has already borne the curse of the law, and been raised from the dead. And so instead, the persuasion comes from the Judaizers who seek to enslave, enslave you from your liberty. And then he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Well, what's the, lu- what's the lump, first of all? Leaven's the whole lump of dough. What do you think the lump is here? Is he not referring to the church? Perhaps. Referring to the leaven that's come in the people of God? In fact, Paul uses this language elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 5, 6. He quotes a similar Proverb, he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Well, somebody want to read for us a little bit more of this chapter, verses 6 to 8. Who wants to read verses 6 to 8? See how Paul's using it here. Chapter 6. I'm sorry, five, five, six to eight. Uh, excuse me, five, seven to uh, five, seven to eight. Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as you were in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast not with old leaven, but with the leaven of malice and wickedness with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Okay. 
You see, he's doing that in light of verse 5 where he says, I have decided to deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And there's a little leaven, that is, this person in the church who has committed gross sin for which they're unrepentant, they're like a little leaven making the lump you know, unholy, if you will. And he says to clean out that old leaven. You see, because we, in a sense, need to celebrate the feast not with the old leaven. And then how does he put it at the last two verses of this chapter? Verses 12 to 13, so I want to read those. For what what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Okay. Obviously, there he's talking about church discipline, isn't he? Okay. And he's actually, he's looking back to the Old Testament, to Deuteronomy 21 and 21, and other passages in Deuteronomy, which talks about casting out the wicked one from the holy holy community of God's people, right? Uh, so there, it's clearly in the context of church discipline. Here, it's it may not be quite as clear, but I think that that's a part of the implication here. Uh, because if you look at verse 10, he says, I have confidence in you and the Lord that you may adopt no other view, but that he who is disturbing you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. Now, uh, certainly the judgment that he'll ultimately bear is the final judgment of God. But it seems to me that because there's a connection between his confidence in them and their judgment that they will bear, that there may be an implication here for church discipline as well. I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will adopt no other view. And if my confidence in you and the Lord then is connected to the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. So something in which it is related to his confidence in them, to that person bearing the judgment, would seem to be church discipline. Or at least get these people out from amongst your midst. Get these false teachers out from among your community. And many in the history of church who have interpreted this passage have also said, look, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's the leaven... Also, like the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what was the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? The law. Okay, part of it was their false teaching of the law, right? And so here, don't let this leaven which is coming amongst you about going back to the older administration, being circumcised, and ultimately seeking your justification by the law, this, this leaven could leaven the whole lump. Get rid of that teaching. You see, live out of the life that you have. The life that you have is one in which you have been delivered from these things. And that's the interesting part, because in the First Corinthians thing, he says to be unleavened as you are. That one, he's very explicit about the fact that you already are and therefore live out of it, are already unleavened, so therefore live out of it. He doesn't exactly say that here, but in the context, you see, this persuasion does not come from him who calls you. 
Him who calls you has brought the heavenly city. So the leaven is opposed to that life. You see, there's this opposition, and you need to cast it out. You need to live out of the liberty that you have in Christ and expunge it. And this judgment, if indeed the church is participating in this judgment in verse 10, it would be interesting to think about how that may be related to their participation in the judgment of Christ as he is raised from the dead at the right hand of the Father. Though Paul doesn't seem to develop that through this letter. Is that here? Well, circumcision. He hasn't forgotten it. He's still thinking about it. In fact, verses 11 and 12, he talks about it. So you see, we got in 11 and 12 a discussion of circumcision, and before that, all the way from 2 to 6, you see, we had implicitly talked about circumcision. And so even what we have in here in the middle, in 7 to 10, even there... That is implying circumcision. That little leaven, which leavens the whole lump, is that desire to return to be circumcised. You see? Now he makes it explicit in verses 11 and 12. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. Would that those who are troubling you would even emasculate themselves. Now... We've already seen that this circumcision is at odds with the new creation, right? It's returning to the older administration now that Christ has come. Therefore, it's at odds with faith working itself through love. And what is happening here is Paul is saying, if I still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? Well, there's a few things that are here. One is that he's making a connection between preaching circumcision and not being persecuted, right? If he, preach, if he preaches circumcision, he wouldn't be persecuted. But he's persecuted in light of the fact that he refuses circumcision and preaches Christ. Well, I'm going to argue in general, as we look at this, that what's going on is... Through the cross, Paul has died to the world, and the world has died to him. He's died to that older administration. And the Judaizers are wedded to it. They worship the world. They worship, therefore, the older administration. And, therefore, they persecute anyone who takes that from them, as Paul does. It's interesting, in thinking about that, Paul might actually be giving some of his biography here. He says, if I still preach circumcision, did Paul preach circumcision at some point? If I still preach circumcision? Okay, it may be that there is an implication that he's looking back on his past life in Judaism, right? Right? Not a previous past life as a Christian who preached Judy, uh, circumcision. That is for sure. 
he may be reflecting back on chapter 1, verse 14, you see, where he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries amongst his countrymen, being zealous for my ancestral traditions. If so, then he would have preached circumcision to the God-fearing Gentiles in the uh, synagogues as he preached in synagogues. Okay. But if so, there's certainly, there may be something here where his life of transition is embodied in this. But why is he still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. The stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. Well, Look at verse 14 of chapter 6. Actually, 13 and 14. Somebody want to read 13 and 14? Chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Okay. See, he's equating circumcision with boasting in the flesh. Okay. To boast in the flesh. He's equating circumcision with that. And then he's saying that he never boasts except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ through which the world was crucified to him and he to the world. He's associating circumcision and the degree of boasting in the flesh with the world. Now, ultimately, now being the world in its ultimate rebellion against God. See, he is crucified to the world and also then crucified to the older administration with circumcision. And therefore, he is saying, I'm a part of a new creation, as he goes on to say in in verse 15. See, for neither circumcision or uncircumcision is anything but a new creation. So he's been crucified to the world and the world to him that he might be participant in a new creation. And so he says, you see, that this is a stumbling block. This is a stumbling block. Now, we're going to look at the prophetic language of the stumbling block. I'm going to suggest to you that here it is a stumbling block to the Jews who do make the law an end in itself who do then seek works, absolutely speaking, as the means of righteousness, right? And therefore, they cannot take grace. Grace through Christ is the stumbling block to them. The cross of Christ is a stumbling block. 
Now, Paul expands on this stumbling block a bit in Romans chapter 9. Verses 32 to 33. Someone want to read that for us there. Uh, Let's read read 31 through 33. When Israel who pursued law of righteousness has not obtained it, why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works, stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay inside a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusted him will never be Okay. Notice what he says. They pursued it as if the law of righteousness. Israel pursuing the law of righteousness, they didn't arrive at that law. What's the law of righteousness that they pursued by law rather than by faith? Well, they pursued by law what actually did arrive here in 933 by grace. What arrives by grace at the end? And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. In this chapter, in the next chapter, refers to the fullness of the coming of the kingdom of God. Okay. And so I'm going to suggest what they pursued by law was to bring in the kingdom of God. Now you can see that connection between 933... Okay, and 10.11. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches to all who call upon him, forever whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Notice, he will not be disappointed, verse 11, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. When is there no distinction between Jew and Greek? When was there? There you go. When there was a distinction in the Old Testament. Good. So in the Old Testament, there was a distinction between Jew and Greek. Now, it's now that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, right? And it is that time in which there is no distinction between Jew and Greek that the fullness of this... Isianic promise has come to pass that he who trusts in him, Christ, will not be put to shame. Okay? So it is this era in the history of redemption that has arrived by grace. So Paul is saying in 933, what has arrived by grace, that is the new era in Christ, is what the Jews were seeking by law. They sought it, verse 32, as if it were by works. They sought to bring in the future age of the kingdom by works. In that way, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And so, this fits with the stumbling stone of the cross that we see in Galatians. For the cross is a stumbling stone because, in effect, it says, I've died to the world. 
What are the Jews trying to do by their works of righteousness? They think they can bring in the kingdom by their works of righteousness. So what kind of kingdom are they going to bring in by their works of righteousness? A what? A worldly kingdom. So by their works, they're going to bring in a worldly kingdom. All right? Their works is for a worldly kingdom. Paul says, by the cross, you see, I have died to the world, and the world has died to me. I've been crucified with Christ, and I possess the new inheritance above, the, the, the new creation in Christ Jesus. By grace, not by works. And thus, this is a stumbling block to the Jews, especially these Judaizers who hate the grace given by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to the people of God, to you, to bring in the age of the Spirit. They do not like that. They stumble over this stumbling stone. Now, if you go back, if we went back and read the passage in Isaiah, you will see that in its prophetic context, especially Isaiah 28, 14 to 19. He talks about that and how they will stumble over the stumbling stone of salvation that the Lord brings. And notice what he says here in Galatians. Verse 11. If I still preach circumcision, then why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. The cross has been abolished. You see, if I still preach circumcision and the older administration and absolutize that and therefore absolutize works righteousness, the cross has been abolished. I nullify the grace of God. That's what the Judaizers are trying to do. Nullify the grace of God. They're opposed to the grace of God. And that's, Paul has continually talked about that in this epistle, about nullifying and destroying, right? You see, if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ died needlessly. Galatians 2.20, right? Or 2.21, then Christ died needlessly. And it's interesting how he has the same word to destroy earlier in our text, in chapter 5. He has it, as we saw earlier, in verse 4. You have been severed from Christ. You have been destroyed from Christ. The grace has been nullified, in a sense. Okay. Now, I would say, only, I mean, truly, God's grace is never nullified in one of his elect. All right. But these are people in the community who've experienced the blessings of the end of the ages, kind of like Hebrews 6, as Jim expounded that so well in his Hebrews class. They've, they've partaken in the blessings of the age to come in that visible sense, and that has been nullified if they go back to circumcision. You see, they circumcise themselves. 
And so you who are seeking to be justified by law, who are going back here, are really ultimately seeking to be justified by law, and therefore you've fallen from grace. You have been destroyed from Christ. You've been severed from Christ. Nullified that grace. And if I preach circumcision, the grace of God has been nullified. The grace that brings in the kingdom of heaven. Yes, David. Uh, to be fair to uh, those who uh, were promoting law and righteousness, I'm mindful of Psalm 119. And uh, uh, Judah's realization that uh, they got kicked out of the land because they didn't adhere to anything that the Lord told them to do. And so you have the 119th Psalm, and, and it starts out, uh, <clears throat> Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. I guess my question is, how, how was, in the Old Testament administration, <coughs> the regenerate supposed to um, discern that their justification was by faith in the Messiah, which was future, and that whether they had the full blessing of God in the land was a, uh, a different um, aspect to their spiritual life. It's whether they were able to adhere to the faith law and all that they were supposed to do prior to the cross. You know, there are probably numerous nuances to that, but uh, I mean, obviously, I would say to begin with that the promise in Genesis 3.15 is given to them, that the seed of the woman would smite the seed of the serpent. So they are ultimately looking for the seed of the woman. right? And that seed gets more and more specifically focused by the time we get to Abraham. It's Abraham's seed, who's the heir of the promise, who is the one through whom the promises will come. And so we're looking at promise. Okay, ultimately, as Paul says in this book, Romans 3, that the, null, the law cannot nullify the promise. So they are looking to the promise to come in Christ Jesus. And they see that promise manifest in their lives in the grace of God given them in the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, And they lay hold of that life to come through their participation in the sacrificial system and all that that implies. But you see, in laying hold of Christ by means of the sacrificial system, they are also acknowledging that he has not yet come, that they are waiting for his arrival. Okay. So uh, even their life in the law is an anticipation of that life which is to come. And I would even say that uh, insofar as they even look to the blessings of the land. Even those blessings do not come to them by strict legal obedience. Okay, uh, In fact, God continually manifests his grace in the land 
in forgiving his people of their sins and giving them blessings that should be unex- perhaps unexpected. In fact, um, <clears throat> uh, Romans 4, Paul talks about David and then quotes a psalm which looks back to David anticipating and, and seeing that his own justification by faith manifest in the deliverance that God gives him from his enemies, uh, even when it may seem that he doesn't deserve it. Uh, so there is this grace even manifest then. But, of course, that's not the final deliverance visibly of David's enemies, is it? And so we have the insufficiency of that, and we wait for the final manifestation of that deliverance in the eschatological dimension when God will deliver his people from their enemies and bring them into an everlasting inheritance forever. So, I don't know if that begins to answer the question, but you see, it's, it's a manifestation of grace, but showing that there is more grace yet to come, and that the actual accomplishment of that grace that they do have even then is yet to come, that the ground for, for their grace that they have is yet to come. So, fits with Hebrews 11 and how the saints in the Old Testament are constantly laying hold of the invisible city yet to come. By grace. Well, I know there's much you can plumb the depths on that. Any more pursuit on that temporarily? Yes? I go a different direction. Okay. Um, you're positioning the cross on one side of circumcision, and Paul seems to be placing it on the other side of this self mutilation here in uh, verse 11. <clears throat> Do you think there's any possibility that the cross may be the circumcision of Christ in some sense? And therefore, <clears throat> circumcision as a right has been redemptive historically completed and fulfilled and is now annulled and will benefit no one, one way or the other. Yeah, and, and, I, and I, maybe it didn't, wasn't clear, but I meant to imply that for what I said back in 5-6, you know, where circumcision is nothing or uncircumcision, and then the in Christ formula that's there for in Christ, neither circumcision. So I, I think that's implied there myself. What do you, you want to follow up? Yeah, uh, Colossians 2, mm-hmm. where in verse 11 he says the circumcision of Christ, and mm-hmm. he's got it in the context of crucifixion and resurrection. It's an interesting statement. That, that makes you think that there's something dramatically redemptive historical going on at the cross, which is more than mere atonement. It's actually Christ himself being cut off from sin. Mm, okay. Good. It's with a little, little sandwich here, here uh-huh. in Galatians, May, you know, he puts the cross between the two blood right things here. Yes. Are you, are you, Circumcision and self-mutilation. Okay. All right. I see what you're saying. In, in verses uh, uh, here in chapter 5, chapter verses 11 and 12. Now I see. If I still preach circumcision on the one hand and in the middle the stumbling block of the cross and on the other side self-mutilation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. Certainly you've got this cut-off theme here in Galatians, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, I mean, Paul is working with how the law is fulfilled in Christ. So I mean, this fits in very well with that as well. Um, and, and we're going to see uh, next week um, more fully how this means that the law uh, 
you know, the, the irony is we can't go back to circumcision, but you see, the law is fulfilled in loving your neighbor as yourself in Christ Jesus, who loved his people and gave himself up for them. You see, so that now we still are living out of the law in the fullness of the end of the ages, in obedience to the law of love and the Ten Commandments. Right? So, uh, there's, there's a richness here that, uh, that we, still, we still have more to plumb. We still have more to plumb. Well, the Judaizers, they want to destroy the cross of Christ because they love the world and they love slavery to the elementary principles of this world in 4, 3, and 9. And thus they hate the fullness of the times. They hate the fullness of the times coming by grace alone. They hate the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And you see, they want themselves to be top dog. They don't even want themselves to be liberated from the world because they don't want to be freed unto God and His liberation. And they want others to be in bondage to the world. They don't want others to be freed in the life of the triune God. And they don't want others to come into the fullness of redemptive history and that liberty that's in Christ. And Paul says, may they mutilate themselves. Wish that they would emasculate themselves. Hmm, some have seen here like the priests, like pagan priests used to do. And, and uh, they would emasculate themselves. Um, and there may be some irony here, because if they did, would they be able to participate in the full blessings of the Old Covenant? No. One who is emasculated cannot enter the temple of the Lord. So, I don't know what else to make of that. It's a very shocking thing. But you see, Paul is saying, go all the way and emasculate themselves as if circumcision is worthless, right? <laughs> Go and be like a pagan. Is he comparing, you see, the Judaizing desire to paganism? I mean, he's been doing that with the Judaizers all along. They're essentially pagans bound to the elementary principles of this world. Is he doing that once again? Well... We'll wait until next week to look at what comes next. Yes? I'm just wondering if maybe he wishes in verse 12 that they would do that, uh, that that might, perhaps that would demonstrate to the Galatians the absolute foolishness of what they're preaching. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe that's something more That's, yeah, maybe. It's interesting to think. Would show up the foolishness of it. Yeah. Okay, following on that, I yeah. wanted to. He uses the word. I wish they would go the whole way. Okay. So that implies to me some logic. To it. He said, like, if they're going to do something, well, that's be logical. Do it more. <laughs> is there any? So what is? I guess my question is, what is the? Words go the whole way. Why does he express it that 
Yeah, I, have, I haven't really thought about that arc, so I don't, I don't have a really good question for, answer for you there, um, except that it is interesting. Uh, he uses this, what I can say is he uses this, this uh, they ought to go the whole way and emasculate themselves. And I've kind of toyed with why does he say they ought to go the whole way and emasculate themselves? Because he uses this word earlier on uh, a couple times in verses 2 and 3, um, uh, where he speaks about some sort of, uh, Behold, Paul, I say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you at all. And there it's, uh, will be of no benefit. That That's that word there for ought. And then in the next one, he goes, uh, I testified every man who received circumcision, he ought to keep the whole law. He ought to keep the whole law. Uh, so is he saying now that they, this would seem to be an ought? They ought to go the whole way and emasculate themselves now, now that, you know, Christ has come, and if they're if they're going to go back and absolutize the law, they they ought to go the whole way. And I I don't know. I, I just think it's interesting that he uses that word there, uh, and that's that's the only other nuance I've thought about in that text. Anybody else? Well, I hope you can see that what the apostle is doing, you see, for your life in Christ Jesus. He's saying that all of your absolutizing of the world and seeking to exalt yourselves by your own works righteousness, that has been crucified by the death of Christ. All of that is foolishness. Christ has made it of no account because he has crucified the world, you see. And... You who trust in Christ have been crucified with him and been raised from the dead into the heavenly places so that you participate in something far grander, far grander than any earthly grandeur or boasting. You participate in the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the freedom and liberty that you have in them, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his resurrection. You are in him. And because you are in him, you have been liberated even from those manipulative Judaizers in your midst. You have been liberated so as to say, no, I will not let the leaven of their foolishness and unrighteousness and their works righteousness infect me and the church. Instead, I will live out of the liberty I have in Christ And I will encourage the brethren to do such too. And to even cast out that leaven from our midst instead of tolerating it. He's going to talk about Christian love here and one another, you see, and loving one another. But that Christian love does not involve tolerating Judaizers in your midst. And that is the life of liberty. Living that way is the embodiment of the life of the liberty of the sons and daughters of God. It is the life of the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Son coming to expression in you as you live in them. Well, any more questions before we close? Yes? Yeah. Do you see uh, it's kind of an eerie similarity between what the Jews are trying to do to bring in an earthly kingdom is the same as what the 
within the Christian community you see the, the Reconstructionists trying to do? Uh, yeah, I have to admit I do. I do see a connection. Um, now, I, I'm grateful that the best of our Reconstructionist brethren who hold to the Westminster Standards and hold to the doctrine of justification in the Westminster Standards are holding to the doctrine of justification there, which is inconsistent with their Christian Reconstructionism, as I see it. Okay, And so, praise God, they're holding on to that, and they're holding on to Christ, and therefore, um, I embrace them in that respect. And yet, I do believe that their Christian Reconstructionism is ultimately at odds with that message. Because what they're trying to do is they see our life as if it's a continuation of this situation, this arena. But then they're trying to make it cosmic. Okay, It's not just in the land of Israel, it's cosmic. Well, what are the Judaizers trying to do here? At least they're trying to make it somewhat cosmic. They're trying to bring it outside the walls of Jerusalem into, into Galatia, aren't they? Okay, so that... You see, what they're doing is they're living under that older administration and saying, we've got to get the curse out of our lives as if we're still under the curse of the law. We, by our Christian deeds, whether whatever it be, whatever the means is, and I mean, they even use homeschooling, and I'm not saying all oh, homeschooling is bad, but they use that to get children involved in this program, you see, to, to be those people who work for bringing in the kingdom of God in all areas of life and politics and art and all this kind of stuff. Now, certainly a Christian should be a good artist if you're an artist. Great. Okay? You should be a good politician if you're a politician. But when you do those things, you're, you're not doing them because you are working to bring the kingdom of God in those actual structures, okay, as if you're under the Old Testament theocracy. Christ has crucified you to that and given you a far greater liberty in the kingdom that he has brought. And now, when you're involved in your life in the world, you're living out of that liberty. You're living unto him in light of the freedom that he has brought in Christ Jesus. So I think that to the degree that a Christian Reconstructionism is focused on their Christian Reconstructionism, that is bondage. Yeah, I think it's bondage. Okay, well, we'll look forward to seeing you next week.